Micah chapter 5. You know, um, oppression's a big word often used in our culture today. So, I was watching a reel that went viral recently. And it's this kid that is a barista at Starbucks. Maybe you've seen it. He goes into the break room. He's alone. He's weeping uncontrollably over the fact that they have a lobby full of customers and only four people to serve them. And it's been like that for the first four hours before he could take his break. And apparently, that's the hardest thing that he had ever done in his life. And how unfair it was that he was asked of his boss to serve special drinks to a lot of expectant customers for four hours with only three others to help him. (laughs) And he's weeping uncontrollably. And he says, I feel like I'm oppressed. You want to jump into the video, kind of grab him by the lapel and say, can I talk to you about the oppression, please, just for a moment? You know, can I get you to get a grip here on life? Can I, can I tell you what hard work really is? Now, for all of you who are Starbucks baristas or baristas in any little coffee shop, I seek not to oppress you this morning by, by giving this illustration. I know you work hard and I know you're on your feet a long time. Um, But the word oppression is, I think, being overused these days. Um, we all could compare our life stories as we have worked in the past. And we used to have a 100-yard-long garden by 40 yards wide. And to the east of that garden were 12 apple trees. And uh, my dad would oppress us and to, to have to work work that garden and uh, prune those trees and pick up all of those little sticks after pruning and uh, he would have the audacity to ask us to do that in 95 degree heat and 98 percent humidity and we certainly thought we were being oppressed until dad would sit down and tell us let me tell you about the farm we used to work in Middlefield let me tell you how big that was and you kids need to understand that we were dragged out of bed at 3.30 in the morning to go muck stalls and milk cows and, and um, on and on and on and on. And, and certainly I quickly began to, to, to feel like I was not oppressed, but that maybe he had been, I don't know. Hard work is not oppression. Uh, we know that. But oppression does exist in our society, and it has existed in every society since the fall of man into sin. We sing the final stanza of O Holy Night, where the author says, Truly, he's taught us to love one another. His law of love and his gospel is peace. Chains shall he break, for the slave is our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. 
Sweet hymns of joy and grateful chorus we praise. Let all within us praise his holy name. Christ is the Lord. We'll praise his name forever. His power and glory evermore proclaim. I don't know if you noticed it. You may have, may not. At least three of the songs we sang this morning included what we would call millennial kingdom references referring to that 1,000-year reign of Christ that's coming in the future on this earth where he will obliterate and wipe away all forms of oppression on it. The songs that we sing at this time of year, as we said last week, are only historical in nature by helping us to recall the birth of our Savior, but also prophetic. They tell of a time to come, as the scriptures do, when Christ, the newborn king, will then reign in a literal kingdom as king on earth. And in that reign, his law will be love. Change shall break. Change of slavery will break, and the slave will be our brother. And in his name, all oppression shall cease. Since the time of the prophet Micah for 2,800 years, the Lord has been telling the world of this coming reality. As we discussed last week, Micah wrote, when the people of God, the Israelites, had brought great oppression upon themselves because they had been oppressing one another for some 500 years. That's why if you flip over to Micah chapter 6 and you hold your finger in Micah chapter 5, the theme for this whole book is just really explained here. What does the Lord require of people who have been oppressing themselves for 500 years, who are about to go under the, the oppression of judgment because of their own sin? He has told you, O man, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to, to walk humbly with your God. That's the theme of this whole text. This is really about man getting along with man. This is really about a prophet who's writing to the common man to cease, ask them to cease to oppress their fellow man. And if they don't, they will be oppressed, and, and we know they will be, and they, they were. The Assyrians came and overtook the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Babylonians were right behind them and took the southern kingdom of Judah into captivity for two generations of time. What was happening in this oppression? What is really oppression that God hates? When wealthy people extort the poor, the wealthy people of this time were illegally selling the land of the poor for profit. This would be like someone in your local municipality office taking the title deed to somebody else's property and creating a false document and putting that false document on the internet for real estate for sale, selling it, and then baking the proceeds. 
This had been happening for decades of time by the time Micah writes to God's people, Israel. The self-proclaimed prophets of the day, the prophets of God, so to speak, they were making money off of people by telling people that they could pray for them and promise them God's safety if they would just cut them a check. Boy, sometimes there's nothing new under the sun, right? <laughs> With TV preachers today making all kinds of sensational, false promises. If we could just send him a check. So Micah preaches against these injustices brought against the poor and against the deceived religious and asks them to repent and to change or judgment's going to come. The overall book is simply set into some major sections here that include both declarations of judgment from God that will certainly come and then at the end of each of these sections of the declaration of judgment, there's a promise of God's mercy and restoration. Micah says in chapter 3 and verse 8 that he's filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and courage to make known to Jacob his rebellious act, even to Israel his sin. So Micah is a common man himself, preaching to common men, and he's empowered from heaven to proclaim judgment upon God's people while preaching justice and mercy and humility. Let's give you a broad overview of this book, and then we'll kind of funnel right back down and pick up where we left off last week. Chapters 1 and 2 is the first major section where God proclaims through the voice of Micah judgment for over 500 years of rebellion. As we already described, leaders have become wealthy through theft and greed, through real estate, illegal real estate sales. But he highlights there in the early chapters of this book the story of Ahab stealing a vineyard, vineyard from Naboth. We've already mentioned that Israel prophets are corrupt by accepting payments through promising the Lord's protection. That's chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 3 and 4, leaders run through the land Offering bribes, political bribes. That's never happened before, has it? Before this time or since that time? But each of these sections concludes with a poem that speaks of God shepherding his flock and overseeing the faithful remnant. Look with me at chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. I will surely assemble all of you. Jacob, I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them together like sheep in the fold, like a flock in the midst of its pasture, and they will be noisy with men. The breaker goes up before them, they break out, pass through the gate, and they go by it. So their king goes on before them, and the Lord at their head. Go over with me to chapter 4. In verses 1 through 8, we'll read some short sections of this book to just remind us that whenever the Lord is about to bring judgment as he pronounces judgment, 
that judgment is always an act of God's mercy at the same time. Each one of these three promises of God's peace coming to them in the future is an assurance that God keeps his promises. That though he judges in the now, it's an act of mercy and an opportunity through that judgment for people to get their hearts right with God so that they can enjoy the future and what Christ the King offers for them. Speaking of the millennial kingdom to come in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, It will come about on the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established at the chief of the mountains, and it will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will stream to it. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us about his ways, that he may teach us, and that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between many peoples and render decisions for mighty distant nations. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they train for war. Each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree with no one to make them afraid. And the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Though all the peoples walk, each in the name of his God, and as for us, we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather the outcasts and those whom I have afflicted, and I will make a lame remnant. I will make the lame a remnant and the outcasts a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now and forever. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come. Even the former dominion will come. And the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Chapter 5, which we started last week, verses 2 through 6, which will continue today as the third ending after a little poem here after the third pronouncement of judgment that's to come then chapter 5 verses 7 to 14 God's people are proclaimed here again in the millennial time period to be a blessing to the whole world and they will assist the Lord in removing evil from the world altogether folks that's going to be you and me right we are going to be the policemen of the millennial kingdom we are going to be the city managers, the mayors. We're going to be the congressmen, the senators, the governors. We're going to be the presidents. We're going to be the prime ministers. We're going to be the rulers of the world with the ruler of the world, King Jesus. And it will be our job with him to expunge every thread of oppression throughout the whole planet. And even though unbelief will exist, it will fear raising its hoary head of wickedness. Because there will be literal one-for-one one judgment. There will be an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Anyone who dare raise their finger against Jesus and you will be removed immediately unto eternal judgment. Chapter 6 and 7 is the final aspect of the warning of hope, fourth and final. Warning against injustices. Chapter 6, we find our theme verse, but if you look at chapter 7, 
like to see how he ends in this final poem after this fourth pronouncement of judgment as he describes God's character and God's promises. Verse 18, who is, who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. And he will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our forefathers from when? From the days of old. My friend, that's Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. And the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. God will, by his own character, by his own unchanging love, and his own unchanging loyalty to what he's decreed to be true for Abraham and his descendants of the world, both physical and spiritual, he will make good on his promises. So the oppression that God's faithful remnant is facing here in the book of Micah, they knew would be short-lived. They knew that they might not be able to escape it. They knew that they might even perish through the siege of both the Assyrians and the Babylonians. But even for the oppressed, even for the downtrodden and the deeply discouraged, their hope was to be set in the person of Jesus Christ and is very certain coming again to do and to perform all that we've read in these four final sections of the book of Micah. Our hope, my friends, will never be and should never be in the here and now. Every single time we have unrealistic expectations socially, religiously, politically, in the here and now, we end up where? Feeling oppressed, feeling discouraged, deeply bummed. And in our American way of life, that's what we're taught, right? We're, we're really taught to to have these unrealistic expectations about our here and now, and if they're not fulfilled, then we have a right to be depressed. And so for us, we, we don't have unrealistic expectations. We're saved from the penalty of sin, we're saved from the power of sin, but my friends, we are not saved from the presence of sin yet. But we will be. Amen. And once that's done, it's forever. It's forever. Forever is a pretty long time. Speaking to someone in the hospital last week, and they had been married for 73 years. I said, how in the world? My goodness, bless your heart. And to them, it was the most glorious 73 years. And for those of you with good marriages, I'm sure we'll all feel the same way at that time. But 73 years... I just celebrated my 31st in August. 
I think that's correct. My wife's not in the room, so <laughs> fact-checking. Someone Google it. 42 more years. I can't wrap my head around that. It seems so gloriously long. But my goodness, what we read about this morning is truly a forever thing. Love ballads that we hear sung on our radios, right? I give all of me to all of you forever. It's like, it's not like that good and that long, right? Christ's commitment to us, God's commitment to us in Christ, it is much better than that and forever and for eternity. Oppression will cease. But as we go back to our discussion of this prophecy of the birth of Christ in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, I just want to highlight three things here briefly as we close this morning about this newborn king that was to be born in Bethlehem Ephrathah. If you remember last week that this king is this newborn baby and would be God's personal offer to the world for salvation. And we learned that that was a comprehensive offer last week and certainly came on authority from heaven. Personal, comprehensive, and authoritative. But this king, once he's born, is to be described here by Micah for our encouragement in very specific and unique ways. And we'll conclude there this morning. Michael wants us to know that the coming of this king is very much a certainty. Very much a certainty. You see, oppressed people don't ever feel they're going to get out from underneath the thumb of oppression. You feel that way today, don't you? Some of you have been sexually abused in your past. Some of you radically physically abused in your past. Some of you have been financially extorted. Some of you have been extorters in your past. Some of you have been sexual molesters in your past and physical abusers in your past, but you came to know Christ and now your life is changed. Whether you were the oppressor or the oppressed, Christ is the only person that can bring peace to your soul and a way forward unto the eternal promises given to us by the very character of God. But for those of you that have been oppressed in your past, you find it in your person very difficult, often, especially when left to yourselves alone. You find yourself often in dark places that seem to be um, permanent places. I was never physically abused. I was never sexually abused. I don't ever, ever feel like uh, I don't, I don't, I've, I've only been extorted by somebody else one time. For like $50,000. Okay. That hurts. How long does it take to get over that personally and financially? A minute. <laughs> but that's nothing compared to what some of you have gone through with the physical and sexual abuse. Right? We understand that the very Spirit of God must minister to your soul as the child of God in a very unique and special way. 
life's darkest aspects of oppression that sin brings our way can be all-consuming. We understand more importantly than that God understands. But there's something of the nature of the certainty of this coming king that all of us need to embrace, especially those of you that have gone through the darkest of times of oppression. There is something of the character of God that offers the promise of this king and the certainty of his coming that is meant to encourage your heart to get your eyes away from that which surrounds you in darkness and get your eyes lifted up to him who is the living star of God. He is, he is the divine superstar of, a, of an eternal state. So bright and so magnificent that in that time the world's not going to need a sunrise to come after a sunset. For he will light the world as it is by himself. No flashlights needed. These people are being preached to by Micah, and there's a faithful remnant that knew what it meant to be under the press of depression, oppression. And he says, this king will come. What does he say here in verse 3? Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has borne a child. He, God, will give them, Israel, Judah specifically here, up until Isaiah 7, 14 is fulfilled, until Micah 5, 2 is fulfilled, until Jesus, God, is in flesh as a human in Bethlehem some 750 years in the future. These people won't even be obviously alive at that point. So why take hope in that? You see, my friends, the hope is not in Jesus merely becoming a man. That's essential for our salvation. But you understand, they had to believe in him who was to come as equally as we need to believe in him who's already been and is still alive at the right hand of the Father. There was something of the certainty of this birth of the God-man that had everything to, for them to understand what the gospel was, who it was. And since they could not remove themselves from the consequences of oppression, they needed to look to Jesus who was essential for the joy of their heart in their present to endure the darkness they were enduring. You cannot live well in any culture or subculture of oppression without understanding and knowing the love and the person of Jesus Christ. You can't do it. PhDs offer prescriptions. MDs do the same thing. Thousands of dollars are spent in appointments for emotional therapy. All those things are good. All those things are necessary. Well, maybe not all of them, but most of them are good and necessary. But all of them are a band-aid for your soul. They are not a permanent fix. They are not a permanent fix. I've sat with way too many people over too long of a period of time 
who have gone through very similar circumstances of the darkest kinds of oppression, and one has chosen to entrust their lives to Jesus Christ, who is the coming king that's going to expunge all oppression, and there's those who don't. God, through the voice of Micah, says, He's going to come. Put your faith in Him. Yes, it's going to be a while. You're not going to see it, but you will reign with him someday. His coming is certain. To the unfaithful who also heard of this prophecy, the unfaithful oppressing the faithful remnant, they're called and other minor prophets, the people of God who are not my people. In Hosea chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, God says to the mouth of Hosea, to you, my people, who are not my people. Hear this judgment. What's he saying? To the elect, physical, national, political group of people, the Jews, you are my people, but you're not my people because you have not looked to the coming of the Savior. You have not turned from your sins and placed your your faith in the person of the babe who's yet to come. So you're not my people spiritually, even though you're my people politically and nationally. To my people who are not my people, those people who are not his people in Judah, hearing the preaching of Micah, this was a message not of comfort and of future peace for them. This was a message of conviction and a call to repentance. And they had a choice to make. beautiful too in first peter chapter 2 and verse 10 if you want to write in the margin of your bible that in hosea chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 peter speaks the language of hosea chapter 1 verses 9 and 10 the people who are not my people but he writes to greeks and not jews it's fascinating to me as peter uses the language of hosea which was explicitly to the jewish people only in a gentile context that this babe who was to come in the manger did come. He lived the perfect life. He died, he was born. He, he was born, he lived, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, he ascended, he's coming again. And now Peter's writing to a group of people throughout all of Asia Minor, the Gentiles, who are now his people, spiritually. So even the salvation is offered to both the Jew and the Gentile, the Jew and the Greek, the barbarian, the Scythian, all are called to repentance who are sinful oppressors. And all Jew or Gentile that are his people spiritually, you're called by the Spirit of God to take refuge by the character of God and the coming promises of God. And the second advent of Christ, when his feet touch this earth in that next time, could be seven years from this morning, if the Lord Jesus comes for his church today. You're called to take comfort in the certainty of that time to come. Well, secondly, this morning, as we rapidly come to a close, this coming king when he does come for that second time, he'll be a 
a majestic shepherd. We read verse 3. The remainder of his brethren, the second part of verse 3, will return the sons of Israel in verse 4, and he will arise and shepherd his flock and the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and they will remain. Because at that time, he will be great unto the ends of the earth. This is a king who's a shepherd, and a shepherd in this context is also a servant. This describes not only Christ at his first advent, but certainly Christ in his second at the commencing of the literal, physical, millennial kingdom. It says here that he will arise. Your version might say he will stand. This is a military term. It, it just simply pictures um, a general over an army who stands victorious at the, end of that, at the end of that battle over his enemies. And he will stand and he'll shepherd his flock and he'll do it in a certain manner by way of a certain means. The manner would be shepherd-like, but the means will be in the strength of his God. And I think that's a beautiful beautiful picture here that King Jesus in the millennial kingdom will still be submissive and dependent upon his father for the power to reign in that time. What a beautiful picture for us as we seek to be Christ-like in our own lives to guard ourselves against any kind of authority issues that we may have. Christ the King will remain in that time submissive to the will of his father just like he had been in eternity past. And he'll gather his people together in the strength of his God and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. The shepherd showing dependence will also be a regal shepherd. He reflects the very majesty of God at the same time. This is a divine rule and because it's a divine rule from a divine person who remains in dependence and authority, under the authority of his father, his people will remain. They'll be forever protected by this regal shepherd. And this reign will be unto the ends of the earth. It's going to be global. There will be no limits, no outstanding pockets of rebellion anywhere to be found on earth. Just gone. And this one, the text says, will be our peace. He will be peace politically, nationally, globally for you only because you made peace with him now. You will not know this political, global, domestic peace if you do not make peace with him in your heart today while you breathe on this earth. These are promises made to those who are being oppressed who have already made peace with God in Christ while they live. And I think this word peace, a familiar Hebrew word to all of us, it's the Hebrew word shalom, and it's more than just the absence of conflict, right? If you understand this word as a Jewish person would understand it or someone who knows the Hebrew tongue, this is an all-sided peace. This is, 
This is the fullness of well-being. Like, there's nothing you will lack. And everything will be in abundance. We need to remember that Jesus is coming for God. We studied that last week. Well, finally this morning, this kingly shepherd is is a person of truth. And we're going to go back and we're going to kind of highlight a couple things here in our last five minutes together. If you go back with me to Micah chapter 5 and let's look at verse 2, I want to do something with this verse because there's only one gospel writer who quotes this verse in the New Testament, and that's Matthew. So if you want to go to Matthew chapter 2 as you hold your finger here in Micah chapter 5, we're going to go back and forth and we're going to compare some things here in the book of Matthew. As you study this text and all the authors that write on this text, you'll find some that have discovered this fascinating truth about this person, this king of truth, in relationship to those who are religious who never embraced him as a king of truth. So we're going to go back to last week. We're going to simply rehearse the phrases of this verse in a couple minutes and compare it to the book of Matthew and come up to the conclusion finally that that, uh, this person should be trusted because uh, as he says in John 14 uh, verse 6, I am the way the what? The truth and the life and no man can come to the Father but through him. He's truth. There has always been since the fall of man into sin someone to pervert the truth of who Jesus is and there always will be until that kingdom that's coming. There always will be. There's always people trying to add to him or take away from him. Jesus is never enough for people, and he's certainly never enough for religious people. There's always got to be more they can do or the church can do for them. Jesus is just simply never enough. So for the scribes and Pharisees, this was true of them. So if you look at Matthew uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 6, when Herod the king heard this, this is the wise men, coming. He was troubled to find Jesus, the newborn king. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and Jerusalem with him, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes. There's that group of people, chief priests and scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, and they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written of the prophet. Now you have to understand, this is what the scribes and chief priests are saying. This is not what Matthew said, this is Matthew reporting what they said. He says, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people. Now you're reading that and you're saying, Boy, that sounds a little bit different than Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And you're right, because it was. That's what apostasy does. And that's why you've got to be a good discerner of Scripture. You've got to be able to take. The error that's combined with truth and weeded out. Because the combination of truth with error is what we call apostasy. What do they subtract? Well, Ephrathah's left out here. I suppose that's really of not much significance. Micah says to the, to the little among the clans of Judah, 
And then the scribes and chief priests say, the land of Judah, you are by no means among the least. Why would they, why would they switch that? Well, for someone who's religiously arrogant, their ruler, they would really, really never want to come from a small, insignificant place. Of absolutely zero historic renown. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a king. And so if they could push Bethlehem out of the way and just really emphasize Judah, our king's going to come from there. And he's not coming to be born as a baby to die. He's coming to be a king. And, and no, 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 no. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna spin this a little bit. We're going to put some religious spin on this. And that's not our king that Mike is talking about. Micah says, one will go forth to you from me to be ruler in Israel. And all the chief priests and scribes say is what? For out of you shall come forth a ruler. What are they doing? In a moment, they're decrying the eternal nature of who this Jesus would be. Just won't mention it. Mentioned part of it, just not the, not the whole story. And they completely leave out the phrases, goings forth or from long ago, from the days of eternity. And they just say, and they just say he's going to shepherd my people Israel. They have no problem with the ideal of a shepherd king, but not a savior born of a, in a baby, in a, of a, in a, in, not a savior born as a baby in a major in a little town of Bethlehem. It's not regal enough. It's not kingly enough. On your own time, if you'd like to write down Matthew chapter 21, verses 15 and 16. And Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. You'll see other times where the Lord Jesus Christ himself is, is confronting the chief priests and the scribes for either not knowing the Bible or misinterpreting it or misrepresenting it. Tremendous truth that people that don't know Jesus really can't know the Bible. They can't understand it. They can't discern it. And what do we find in Matthew's writing then at the end? In Matthew chapter 20 and verse 18, these same chief priests and scribes are about to commit, condemn Jesus to death. The very word of God in person will be killed by those who have distorted the preserved written word of God for decades and religion always seeks to shred by way of rationalization and tradition the significance of Jesus as he is the very truth of God in flesh I would ask you this morning do you know him Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 says, And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his God, of his, God's glory, and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the very word of his power. If Jesus is not this by nature, then he could not 
do what Hebrews chapter 1 verses 3 and 4 states, which is this. When he had made purification of sins, he, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. And read through the rest of the text through verse 9. This Jesus that Micah speaks that will come is the very truth that religion seeks to dismantle and therefore dissuade their people away from him in his divine exclusivity. But again, he's the way, he's the truth, and he's the life. And the reality is this is what? All oppression will not cease today. It will not cease in your tomorrow. As a matter of fact, 1 John says this, and I don't need to be the pastor of discouragement this morning, but the world is passing away and the lust thereof. But he that does the will of God will abide forever. finished last week with eight different lies the world's told as they try to claim their own authority over God's authority and one of the lies that you're told that leads to our spiritual discouragement often is that we can live our way out of various forms of oppression and you can't but there's one who can by his grace not only save you underpin your ability to persevere as James says in James chapter 1. Reckon it all joy when you fall into various temptations and trials. He's truth. And his truth is the bread for our souls that causes us to continue to grow in him to be like him as we endure under this cloud of a world that's in terminal decay. Okay. His future coming is certain. When he comes, he'll rule as a kingly shepherd, as the truth of God among us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, as we sing the carols of Christmas, we certainly think, we certainly sing words that are encouraging to us about our Savior. Who has brought peace to our souls, comfort to our hearts, and hope to our futures. Help us to be a people that as we celebrate Christmas and bright lights and cheerful hearts to remember that everyone in this room is under some degree of oppression, some greater than others. As we celebrate a joyful time because we know of that joyful time to come, help us to remember that in the here and now, the Savior that will reign and expunge all oppression from this earth can in the here and now use us to help each other with our own struggles, 
to help each other be reminded to look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith and the here and now, so that the light of that understanding of the truth of who he is would certainly overshadow the darkness of the oppression that we, we, we endure. Help us to find our joy in him who has been born, who has, say, has died, buried, resurrected, and ascended and coming again, that has given us that joy. Be our joy today. And help us, Lord, to confidently, confidently look unto him who is our hope. Maybe allow our minds and our hearts to dwell a little bit more on that future to come than we do. Maybe by the mere discipline of that, Lord, we'll be able to help each other more in our times of discouragement now. In Jesus' name.